Lamentations. If you would turn there, our meditation as we press forward in our verse-by-verse study of this book, we will be looking at verses 7 through 15. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15 in the Word of God today. The Apostle Paul tells us, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. When I was growing up, there were certain Sundays that I would get really, really excited about. Now, I have to confess, despite your impressions, I am far from perfect. And I have to confess that these Sundays where I was real excited were not about the Lord or not about church. I was excited on some Sundays as a kid because of certain sporting events. Like that February every year on Sunday, wherein the Daytona 500 was being run. And my favorite driver was the Intimidator. Can I get a witness, anybody? Number three, the black GM Goodrich Chevrolet driven by Dale Earnhardt. Earnhardt had won multiple Winston Cup points titles. He had been victorious in all of the races on the NASCAR circuit except one. He had never won that elusive Daytona 500. And on that day in 1990, all the signs were pointing to the fact that he just might that day. Of the 200 laps of that race, Earnhardt led a stunning 155 of them. He was dominating, y'all. He was running away, streaking from the rest of the field. Nobody could touch him. And it looked like he was going to coast to his first Daytona 500 victory. Finally, the white flag came out. The last lap, one more to go. And going into turn three... Earnhardt hit a piece of bell housing that had fallen off of another car. I still don't know what a bell housing is, but I can tell you I hate it to this day because it flew up into his car and under the rear tire and cut his tire and he went from 190 miles an hour to 55 miles an hour, allowing Derek Doggone Cope to catch up with him and pass him before the finish line. And I remember... The feeling, even as a nine-year-old boy, of being so mad. I was so angry. A cut tire? Are you kidding me? It's like he said, if it was the Daytona 499, I'd have won the thing six times. 
But it's the Daytona 500. And he cut his tire on almost the last turn, almost to the finish line. And maybe that's the closest I can say I've come to feeling how Paul expresses his own feeling in this passage. Only their race was not a NASCAR race. Their race was not an auto race, but the race of faith. The, the challenge, that is, of remaining faithful to Jesus and his gospel individually and as a church. Remaining faithful to Jesus, getting to the finish line, being able to say, like the man who wrote this passage, I fought a good fight and I have finished my course having kept the faith. I'm crossing the finish line and I've kept the faith intact. You can't finish well if you're not running well. And that's the pressing issue for Paul. Doesn't he say in verse number 7, you were running well. You were doing so good. What happened? Maybe I could ask you that question this morning. What's happened to you? What's happened in your Christian experience or your walk with the Lord? What's come about in the last maybe week or month or year or so and you are not running well with Jesus like you used to? Who hindered you, he says. Therefore, we ought to consider these barriers that we face in the race. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That is, believing the truth, holding on to the truth, and then living out its logical, practical ramifications in your life. Paul asked them, who hindered you? You see that word hindered in verse number 7? Um, it literally means to cut in. Almost like you're driving in traffic down the interstate. Here comes somebody and they cut you right off. And you've got to slam on brakes and you're not going down the road as smoothly and as quickly as you were just a few seconds ago. Somebody cut in on you. Who, who put up a speed bump in your walk with the Lord? Where'd this barricade come from? How'd you get that cut tire? Why are you on the side of the road instead of running in the race? Who hindered you? Who put the spike sticks out in your racing pursuit of Jesus? Well, one barrier we might say is what I would call deceptive claims that might come along. In verse number 8, for instance, this persuasion is not from him who calls you what persuasion you probably if you've been here for the study of Galatians you know what persuasion the persuasion away from Jesus they were being convinced by lying false preachers and pastors that they had to go through a ceremony a religious ceremony and then do good works in following their circumcision to really secure their salvation. They were persuaded that Jesus was good but not quite enough. And Paul says, let me guarantee you one thing, that doesn't come from the God who what? Called you. Called you. If you are a Christian here today, you need to know this. You are only a Christian 
Because God called your name. God brought you out of death and into life. God drew you out of darkness and into the light. He took hold by His Holy Spirit's power of your rotting corpse in the ground of spiritual death and breathed new life just like He did to the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. God called your name. You didn't wake yourself up from spiritual death. You didn't regenerate your heart. You didn't born yourself again any more than you born yourself the first time. God saved you because God called you monergistically, which being translated means by the energy of one, not by the energy of two. It wasn't God plus you that brought about your salvation. It was effectual, irresistible calling. And here come these jokers throwing up a barricade in the way, saying you've got to keep the law of Moses to really save your soul. You've got to do enough good works in your life to earn the favor of God. And Paul says, when you hear a message like this, know this, it is not from God. Anybody who denies the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ is not speaking for God, church. He's speaking for the devil. Watch out for these deceptive claims that minimize the precious work of the Lamb of God and emphasize human effort and achievement. Dangerous claims can be a barrier of hindrance, but there can also be some dangerous contagions that we need to look out for in verse number 9. It's a common parable that you find in Pauline's writing. It's probably circulating. Uh, my grandma used to have these little sayings. I, I loved them. My grandma would just drop these pearls of wisdom in these little sayings. And I would be really thirsty sometimes. And uh, I wanted some, some sweet tea. And I wanted a whole glass. And grandma would pour me about this much of it. She was one of these ladies who like kept the ice, put it back in the freezer. Like don't rip up the presents when at Christmas time because I'm going to wrap them and reuse me. And she went through the hard times of the depression and post-depression era. And so she was, uh, she was a little tight-fisted sometimes when it came. She was very frugal and wise. And so she would give me, when I wanted a whole glass of tea, she gave me this much tea. And I would say, Grandma, and she would say, with a smile and a wink, a little dab will do you, Jesse. A little dab will do I want a lot of dab will do you. Not a little dab will do you. But in a Jewish culture, they had these little pearls of wisdom, these little proverbs of caution, one of which is there in verse number 9 where Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It just takes a little, a little bit of yeast on that lo loaf of bread to, when you put it in the oven, cause it to rise. It doesn't take a whole lot. Just a little leaven infects and affects the entire lump of dough. And leaven, leaven in the nomenclature and the categories of the Bible, especially the New Testament, often stands particularly for two things. One thing that leaven represents in Scripture is false teaching. False teaching. Unbiblical, erroneous, false doctrine. 
and it tends to spread, like Paul says to Timothy, like gangrene, like a disease you get in your body. And if you don't get it cut out, like cancerous cells, if you don't get it pulled out or cut out in time, it's going to infect your whole body and it's going to kill you. And so it is with false teaching, adding to the gospel of the grace of God. And if you keep imbibing that and you're not on and you're not discerning in your mind and you don't know the truth and you don't stand for the truth. He says, watch out, that stuff will spread like a little leaven, leavening the whole lump and the whole lump of the church, the whole lot of us might be infected if we're not on caution. This is a barrier, a dangerous contagion. Stands for false teaching, does leaven. Also, it stands for immorality. Leaven stands for immorality. Have you ever noticed that, that, a, that a habitual lifestyle of sin tends to be contagious a lot more so than a life of righteousness? Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, there's a prophet who's given a real life illustration of this. He says, you know, if, if something that is ceremonially clean touches something that is common, does it make the common thing ceremonially clean? Which the answer is no. Oh, but if something in the Old Testament economy is ceremonially unclean and it touches something that is common, it makes it unclean as well. St. Paul says, be on your guard and make no mistake about it. Evil company corrupts. Good morals. Sin is a corrupting, caustic, acidic agent that eats into the soul of the one who comes in contact with it and just a little bit can make a tremendously bad influence and impact. Christian, you need to think about the example you're setting. If you are comfortable with your sin, think about a brother or sister who might not be as mature as you getting comfortable in their sin, just a little leaven. Dangerous contagions. As Benjamin Franklin, I believe, who's attributed, was saying, For one of a nail, the horseshoe was lost. For one of a horseshoe, the rider was lost. For one of a rider, the battle was lost. For one of a battle, the kingdom was lost. The kingdom was lost for want of a nail that goes into a horseshoe. Just a small little lack of something in the kingdom was lost. Just a little leaven, a little sin. A little error, a little heresy. In reality, you and I both know, I hope, there's no such thing as a little sin. There's no such thing as a little heresy. Only one sin, what harm can it do? But give it free reign, and soon there will be two. Then sinful deeds and habits ensue. So guard well your thoughts, Christian, lest they destroy you. Dangerous contagions, deceptive claims. There's a third barrier we could mention in verse number 10, disturbing characters. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. This is so helpful for a person whose natural constitution like me tends to be more pessimistic than optimistic. It's always glass half full. I need grandma to remind me a little dabble, do you? It seems like with me, I'm more uh, half empty, I should say. Um, I'm, I tend to be more pessimistic. 
And sometimes, I'll be honest, as a pastor or, or probably as an elder, you, you look at the state of the church at large and you look at the purveyance of false doctrine and you look at the immaturity of so-called Christians and a lot of times unfaithfulness trumps faithfulness and Christians are so wishy-washy these days in their convictions. And you ask, what's going on? God, is the church going to be completely lost or eradicated from off of the earth? And here comes Pastor Paul in verse number 10 to a group who was espousing error, heresy, and temptation to sin. And he says, I have confidence. And if you read Galatians, you're like, you have confidence in these people? And actually, Paul would say, nope, I don't. This Paul who said, we put no confidence in the flesh. I have no confidence in my own ability to pastor a church. i got to confess that to you. In my own ability. I have no confidence in your own ability to live a life that glorifies God. Sorry, don't shoot me. I don't have any confidence in you and I don't have any confidence in me to do the things that honor the Lord if we're left to ourselves. But aren't you glad for this one little phrase in verse number 10? I have confidence. Where is Paul's confidence? In the Lord. I have confidence of the power of the God who lives within you. I am confident, says Paul to the Philippians, that he who began the good work in you, that's God, will bring it to completion. What God starts, he always finishes. The good work God is doing in you, I have confidence in the Lord's finishing and completing his work in you. And by God's grace in me, I have confidence. Well-placed confidence is confidence not in the flesh, but in the Lord. And therefore... I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That you will, in the end, and ultimately hold fast to Jesus and walk with him and love him and serve him. And you'll recognize these false teachers for what they are. The ones who are troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. He's going to stand and give an account for the false Christ and the false doctrine and the false gospel that he has preached. That's why Spurgeon said of this verse, depend upon it. Every man who troubles a church with false doctrine is amenable to the high court above. That's something to think about as an elder or if you teach even a Sunday school class. That you teach sound doctrine. Not like these disturbing characters, these harmful elements in the church who were troubling, stirring them up. And And then as we hurry... One more barrier that I need to mention in verses 11 through 12 to running well is distressing conflict. Distressing conflict. They, uh, I guess, were saying, now listen, Paul agrees with us. The false teachers were saying something like this. Listen to us. Paul agrees with us. Paul would tell you if he were here in Galatia that you need circumcision to be saved. And you need to do the good works of keeping the law after your circumcision if you would earn your justification. Paul agrees with us. Don't worry. We're not telling you untruths. We're not lying to you. And Paul says, hold on a minute. If I'm still preaching circumcision, then why do the preachers of circumcision for justification persecute me? 
they hate the message that I preach. If I were preaching Jesus plus human effort, why am I still being persecuted? Because in that case, if I, that is, if I were preaching your own ability to climb the ladder to heaven by your own strength and power, if I'm preaching that, you know what it does to the preaching of the gospel? It destroys what Paul says, the offense scandal in the original of the cross. What is, what is so offensive about the preaching of the gospel? Well, for one thing, the preaching of the biblical gospel starts with telling you and me, you and I are filthy, stinking, rotten, dead sinners who don't come into the world loving God and chasing God. We come into the world denying God and hating God and loving darkness rather than light. The world says everybody is basically good. The Bible says nobody is good. No, not a single one of you, says Paul. Not a single one of us is good. Naturally speaking, in terms of winning favor with God. That's pretty offensive. Try saying that on the set of Oprah and see if the security guards don't carry you off stage. Nobody's basically good. The Bible also says you are completely incapable of saving yourself. The Bible also says, and the world really hates this one, there is no way to God but Jesus. No other way to God. No other world religion will save you. I don't care how pious it might look, how ornate the ceremonies, how beautiful the outward form and circumstance of the religion, how mystical it might seem, how magical, how powerful, how popular. If it is not Jesus, it does not lead to heaven, but hell. It's the offense of the biblical gospel. And Paul was preaching this gospel and being persecuted because of it. The offense of the cross has been removed. I must preach the gospel. I must preach the cross, Paul says, and no other way to God. J.C. Ryle, I read a wonderful quote. He said, like a soldier without weapons, like an artist without his brush, like a pilot without his compass, like a worker without his tools, is a minister without the cross. A minister who does not preach the cross and the exclusive cross for salvation is like a man who doesn't have the tools he needs. A man may preach with a perfect knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, but he will do little or no good unless he preaches the cross. Never, listen at this, was there a minister who did anything for the conversion of the souls who did not proclaim loudly the cross of Christ. And Paul knew when he's writing this, Paul knew that Christianity lives or dies by the preaching of the cross. The preaching of Jesus Christ crucified. Nothing can be added. Nothing taken away. Soli Deo Gloria for the glory of God alone. Salvation's grand work in Christ and no other unto the glory of God. Not your works, not your worthiness or whatever else. Which is why Paul takes it up to 100. Do you catch it? In verse number 12, Paul takes it to 100 real quick. In verse number 12, 
I wish these men who love circumcision so much would castrate themselves. I mean, the danger of being crass. He says, I wish they'd cut it off so they could stop reproducing in the church. Because they're detracting from the glory of God and the true liberty of salvation. They're trying to bring you back into slavery to mosaic legislations and put you on a hamster wheel of never being able to have assurance because if you and I are saved by works, if you've got to be good enough to get into heaven, let me ask you this question. How do you know that your good is good enough to be approved by God? How can you know? When you lay your head down at night, I hope my good is good enough. How can you ever know your good is good enough? But whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You find grand assurance and not your performance, but Jesus' performance which was and is and shall be perfect and perfectly approved by God. And here's how I know. Because he raised him from the dead on the third day. That was the Father declaring, This is my beloved Son and I am well pleased and he has finished the work that I sent him to do. Heaven's stamp of approval over the empty tomb. Paul said, these men who don't preach that, if they love circumcision so much, just go ahead and emasculate themselves. Because he wants you to run well. And so he warns you of these boundaries to watch out for, these barriers rather to watch out for. But there are, there are boundaries because Christian liberty, freedom in Jesus, is vastly different than lawless living. And so as we close... Paul now moves us from the barriers to the boundaries of running well, staying on a gospel track. There are two boundaries that we follow. And freedom, you'll notice in 13 through 15, the second paragraph of this unit, freedom is the critical idea. Freedom in the race is determined by certain boundaries. After all, there have been some who have imbibed the philosophy, freedom in Jesus. What a happy condition. I can sin all I want. I still have remission or maybe permission. I'm free in Jesus. I'm forgiven of my sin, which means I can do whatever I want to do and I'm still going to heaven. And Paul says, if you think like that, you don't understand freedom in its true biblical sense. You don't know what true freedom is if you think freedom in Jesus is freedom to sin. What, what really is freedom? Well, by way of negation, he shows us in verse 13, freedom in Christ is not freedom of carnal indulgence. You were called to freedom, brothers. Not slavish fear of trying to work your way up to heaven. You were called to freedom. Jesus has done it all. But, only qualifier, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You might take the approach, you think about two Greek words for love here. One Greek word for love is eros, which means a fleshly kind of lust. And the other word is agapos, which means a highly noble kind of selfless love. Eros is a fleshly kind of lust 
that looks for gratification from its object. Listen now. Agapos is a noble, holy kind of love that looks for the highest good in its object. So what kind of love do you have? Do you view others as tools that you can use to gratify, satisfy, or get something for yourself? Is everybody else just a tool to help you further your agenda? Or do you look at others the way Jesus Christ looked at you and sought you with a love that sought your highest, holiest, and noblest good? There's two possibilities. In your freedom, you might use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, an opportunity for lust. Boy, do Christians need to hear this because I tell you what, I don't know the exact numbers, but I guarantee you there are many professing Christians in the world and in the church today who are addicted to pornography, who do things like watch OnlyFans videos. Maybe there are even some Christians who, for money, undress themselves and let gawkers look on them on a video, call themselves Christians. There are many Christians, or so-called Christians, who are unmarried and yet living together. There are many Christians who are unfaithful to their spouses, carrying on some kind of illicit physical affair or emotional affair, being unfaithful to their husband, or to their wife, and calling themselves Christians, and not repenting of that sin. And they might say, I have been forgiven of that sin. Yes, you have. Now, how are you using your freedom? Using others to serve and gratify yourself? Or is it that you can say from a good conscience, through love, serving one another? Seeking the highest and holiest and noblest good. That is seeking Christ-likeness in our brothers and our sisters. In Christ, freedom is not a freedom of carnal indulgence, but selfless service. Secondly, callous intolerance. Not carnal indulgence. And, and freedom in Christ also is not to be confused with a freedom for callous intolerance. Verse number 14, for the whole law. You want to talk about fulfilling the whole law, you want to talk about living by the law of God as these Galatian false teachers did. The whole law is fulfilled in one word or one commandment. Quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It really is beautiful the way Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments. The first four of the ten have no other gods before me, make no graven image, um, Hallow God's name and don't take it in vain and keep the Sabbath day. What are those four commandments about? You know what they're about? Loving God. You love God by worshiping him, how he wants to be worshipped, when he wants to be worshipped, in the manner he wants to be worshipped, to whom worship is due. Love God. You know what the second set of ten commandments, commandments numbers five through ten are about? Well, commandment number five is honor your father and mother. Commandment six is don't commit murder and Seven is don't commit adultery. Eight is don't steal. Nine is don't bear false witness. Ten is don't covet. What do those have in common? 
honoring my parents and not killing and murdering and stealing and committing adultery and bearing false witness and, and being jealous or envious. What do those have in common? Why, that's how you love your neighbor. That's how you love your neighbor. And so Paul says the second six commandments relationally to one another, your freedom in Christ is the freedom to love your neighbor as yourself. And notice this is not a prerequisite unto justification. This is a product flowing out of justification. You don't love your neighbor as yourself to obtain liberty. You love your neighbor as yourself because you have been given liberty. Not calloused intolerance of one another. Look at this image that he paints in verse number 15. If you're not loving, the opposite might be, here's one good way, a litmus test. Am I loving the way I ought to? I don't know. Have you checked your tongue lately? Have you prayed that David said, a guard at the gate of your lips that nothing that ought not escape it about somebody else escape it? How do you speak of your brothers and sisters? How do you speak of other people? Are you known as a gossip, a backbiter, a slanderer, a liar, somebody who throws mud on the reputation of somebody else? Do you, do you chew on and bite and devour with your words? But Paul gives a warning to the church that if you bite and devour another, watch out. There's danger there because you're going to consume each other. After all, are we not one body? And so when you bite each other, you're eating yourself up. You're cannibalizing yourself. Like I told the kids last night, imagine a, and Ella Catherine was like, how would that be possible? And I said, it's just an analogy, okay? Just go with it. But a snake, a long snake that's really hungry and he's curled up in the bush and he's, he's a snake that eats other snakes. That are, that's not uncommon in the animal world. And he sees a tail flickering and he latches onto it and he begins to swallow it whole and he's eating and eating and eating and eating, not knowing he's eating his own self. This analogy Paul uses in verse number 15 likely has precedent in Isaiah chapter number 9 where he uses the two tribes named after the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. It's like you're slicing meat and eating. Manasseh is devouring Ephraim, and Ephraim is devouring Manasseh, and they're both eating Judah. That is this infighting in Israel, these tribes that are eating each other up by fighting and devouring, is fracturing the nation. And when we bite and devour one another, it fractures the church, doesn't it? That ain't freedom. That's sin. That's not the kind of freedom that Christ has won for us. This is a lesson that was put on display at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Evidently, tradition says that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built on top of the tomb that Jesus rose from. I don't know if it's true or not. But over the years, the Christian faction groups of Coptic Christians and Ethiopic Christians have been fighting over control of this building. And, and so... One time, a sultan, many years ago, a sultan said, okay, Coptic Christians get this side of the church and Ethiopic Christians get this side of the church. You each own half of it right down the middle. And so in order to guard their half of the building, each put a monk, like a guard, on top of the roof of the church and, and they set a chair and there's 24 hours a monk stationed there for the Ethiopics and the Coptics. 
One day, the, the sun was beating down on one side, and, and I think it was the Coptic side that had the sun hitting on it, and, and he was hot, and so he wanted to get over in the shade. And so he moved his chair slightly over in the shade, only the shade was on the other group's side of the roof. And so a fight, an all-out brawl ensued. Somebody went to the hospital with a severe concussion. Eleven monks were injured. One had a broken arm. One was knocked unconscious. And it was all taking place right on top, supposedly, of the place where Jesus rose from the dead. And that's the kind of unity that is displayed among those who profess to follow him. There's no reason for there to be needless conflict, dear church, in this place. Built as a memorial to worship a Christ who is risen from the dead. In whom we have unity and love. Paul gives the warning. If you devour and bite one another, you're not hurting any one body of Christ but yourself. So I ask you today, how's your race going? By God's grace, maybe we all need to get back on track. Amen? Let us pray. Help us, Lord, to run well for your glory and to be on guard against the barriers that would hinder us and to run within the boundaries of our Christian liberty to, through love, serve one another. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.